Hey everybody, it is episode 40 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas with Steve here. Hey Steve. Hey podcast world, we're over the hill. We are over the hill. We are today coming to you to finally wrap up, in a sense, our mental training series. As if. This will be our eighth (laughs) episode in the series where we talk about the practical application of many of the tools that we've talked about in previous episodes on mental training. How do you actually take these ideas from concept to a reality that you can live and breathe? And we're going to talk about the steps to do that today. Just for context and for reference, it'll be important for you. You don't have to necessarily listen to these other episodes before you get to this one, but I do think it's helpful to get the full series at some point. Those other episodes in the series are episodes 6, 11, 13, 18, 20, 25, 32, and now 40. Hopefully you've come along with us on this journey. If not, listen to this one and then go back. So we'll be talking about how do you practically apply these mental training concepts. Before we get there, as we always do, we're going to talk some running current events that are relevant, especially for our next episode where we talk about Chicago Marathon. But in this one, we're going to talk about one of the prep races for Chicago, which many of the Americans ran. And first start start with current events on the Road 20K, U.S. Road 20K Championships this past weekend in the New Haven Road Race. 20K, a weird distance. It's just under half marathon distance for those that are trying to do the math. 21.1K is approximately a half marathon. So 20K is just short of that by about a kilometer. So kind of a weird distance, not often raced, but the New Haven Road Race has actually a quite, quite a storied history at this distance so it's not unfamiliar to that part of the world but a lot of the top americans were in new haven for the 20k road championships and it's important to note for those that don't know that the u.s road championship series which includes everything from the mile to the marathon actually is pretty legit and usually attracts big fields because they have decent prize money and this one was no different you had galen rupp out there doing his tune-up for chicago which will happen in a couple of weeks. But you also had other uh, big American names, Leonard Career, who just raced at the World Championships, Sam Chalanga, who was at the U.S. Trials in the 10K and I believe finished top five there. And so you had a pretty stacked field there. And on the women's side, Jordan Hesse, who's also racing Chicago, did this as a, as a tune-up race with Alephine Tilliamont getting in there as well. The top U.S. finisher at World Cross, Sarah Hall, Becky Wade, and Stephanie Bruce coming back from having a child. So pretty legit fields on both sides. And we'll start with the men's side, Steve. Galen won in 59.04, but he barely edged out in what might be considered a photo finish, Leonard Career, who was right with him in 29.05. If you look at the pictures from from that finish, it Almost looked like Leonard Career won from certain angles, but Rupp just got him in the kick to the line. What does this say with him getting first, Career second, and Chalanga third, not too far behind in 59-16? What does this say about Rupp's dominance in American distance running? It seems like the gap is closing. Well, it's assuredly closing. Um, it doesn't hurt that we have all these imports, but uh, 
again, another topic for another day. Uh, but Lenny Career is he's he's one of ours, and we, we're claiming him. He's an Olympian now, and you know, I think what it says most to me when I was prep when I saw this result, I thought two basic things. Number one, Galen's in marathon shape because this equivalent is about to it's about a sixty-two fifteen or so, somewhere yep. around there for sixty-two fifteen uh, half marathon. So Galen's definitely been targeting half marathon training we saw that at usa Cha- at the usa champs he was i mean targeting marathon training he's de- at the usa champs he did not well he did not look that great um and you see why i mean this this lines up this makes me made me even more confident of what he's going to do at chicago because i think he's really really ready and lenny is coming off the world championships 10k and 5K, I think he did both of them, didn't he? Or did 10K for sure? No, he didn't do the 5K. Just, he just 10K. did the 10K. Yep. And man, he he's sharp and ready. So you know, he's he's definitely stretching more to get to this distance where Galen doesn't. Now, if you saw the video footage, you can see on Let's Run, they showed two shots. One shot is the finish of the race where it's like they're just together. But if you scroll down that page a little bit, you can see the second video, and Galen's out in front trying to pull away, and Career is rolling him up. And I think if that race had been five meters more, Galen would have been caught. But in Galen's defense, he timed his push perfectly, and he's in really, really good shape. The other thing it tells me is that watch out for Sam Chalenga because Sam Chalenga is running Chicago as well. That's right. I don't know that it's his debut. I can't. I don't know if he DNF'd his first marathon, but the 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 chart that I saw just had a blank by his name. It didn't have anything else, whether it was a debut or not. But he was right with those guys, and those are two legitimate, seriously in shape, ready to go guys. So I think Sam Chalenga should feel really, really confident about about where he is. I mean, they decimated the rest of the field. They put everybody else to sleep. It was over. It was those two guys, those three guys. So. I'm, again, it makes me even more excited about Chicago. Um, we're going to talk about that in a future episode. But one thing that makes me excited about Chicago really is like we've got some really good Americans getting ready to toe the line. Um, and I'm excited to see some of these Americans and how they pull it out. And um, Chilang, I'm one of the most excited I'm, I am most excited about seeing race. So looking forward to Chicago and how this preps that. Chilanga DNF'd at the marathon trials uh, that's yeah. last February, which is why he's got that two dashes next to his name instead of his debut. So he's never finished a marathon, but he started one. And this does bode well for him. And the fact that he's training with that American Distance Project group also does, because all of those guys, Career, Chip Tichir, and Cabani and Cabet, they're all firing on all cylinders, it seems like, from from 5K up to marathon, well, steeple up to marathon. Yep. So you have to believe he's going to be ready to go in Chicago and to be this close in this race says that, who knows, maybe he'll be in it. We will be doing our Chicago picks and preview with the next episode, 41, so that's a little teaser for that. But, you know, for me with, I guess it's just interesting. I, I worry a little bit with Ruff that he's losing his edge a little bit right there was a time when sort of like molly huddle it was like death taxes and and galen rupp where he couldn't be beaten and and now you're starting to see some chinks in the armor i wonder how that bodes for his confidence when it comes to winning a marathon 
So I think that'll be interesting because Chicago is there for him to take. And so it'll be interesting to see. And of course he won the Olympic trials, you know, with other American competition. So he had a phenomenal race. You can't take that away from phenomenal race at Boston. He, He wasn't able to beat a guy that we now know, we have now come to see as could be unbeatable. <laughs> right. Uh, definitely one of the four greatest, ma- best marathoners at, at, at the current time. Um, but I think, I still think that this race should be, he should walk away from this race feeling much more, feeling very confident. He beat Chalenga, who's in really good shape. That's probably not a surprise. And the distance with which he beat him, it probably showed that they, he was looking for a win. He wasn't looking for anything else. He just needed to run faster than marathon race pace, and he ran a little bit slower than a half than you would expect, but par for what you would expect from somebody getting ready for a full marathon, and he beat a guy who's a known quantity at the world level in the, in the 10K. So I think he should feel pretty confident. Um, I do think I agree with you. You, know, I missed, you. you made a point at the beginning of this when we talked about how cool this series of races is this world the 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 US road champs it's such a really cool race series having everything from you know every distance from five you know mile to i don't know if they do marathon is marathon one of them yeah yeah so I mean, all twins, the way up yeah, so yeah twin everything. cities is, is it this year it's and it's mile, just mile 5k 10k so everybody sort of has a shot you know what i mean the milers really don't have that much of a shot and it's almost like the marathoners don't have that much of a shot. But everybody in between, you have a shot at getting some serious points and making some money. And so I think it has really added to the depth and um, the level of consistency that we're seeing in American distance running. It's a pretty cool thing to see. Before we go off, Rob, this applies to Jordan Hesse as well. It's interesting to me to see Salazar's approach before Rupp's last marathon, before Boston, he did a half marathon in Prague. So did Jordan. And in this race, he's doing it, or this time for Chicago, he's doing a 20K about the same distance. It seemed like in when Salazar was in his mode of doing his best marathons, his thing was being really fit for the 10K, you know, with the range of a marathoner and doing a fast 10K a couple weeks out, potentially. So I wonder if this points to a shift in his coaching strategy that he's got Rupp competing at the half or 20k distance versus the 10k like like Salazar did in his own sort of heyday when he was kind of primed and ready what are your thoughts on that from a coaching perspective um I think one thing that is is Alberto Salazar has learned not only does he learning about being a student of the sport and, and using every everything he can to throw every science every scientist's ideas that you could possibly throw at and running him through a petri dish and through a, <laughs> uh, on a treadmill and everything else. But I think he's also learned from his own mistakes and his own, his own work. Um, I think that uh, he probably is also prescient in the fact that he knows a little bit more where his athlete's strength thought is. It's also timing. He, he, he had a chance to run a really fast, really fast track. That track race that he ran, that incredibly great uh, 10K in Eugene, against Rono right before he won the Boston Marathon, he made that race up. He ba- That wasn't a meet. He just sort of whipped it up out of pure blue sky. And so, you know, he there aren't that many opportunities. He can't really, even Alberto Zalazar can't do that for Rupp. <laughs> so it could be that this was just the very best option that they had on the plate for them. Would he pick a 10K? I don't know. I think he's probably is a little concerned, as, you, as you've indicated, that maybe his athlete needed a big win. And this distance was an A win to go into a race that he's trying to win. Um, and so, you know, I think there's probably a little gamesmanship going on, a little bit of, you know, we need a race 
we need a race that's faster than what we're going to run for the marathon. What distance may not really matter. Um, but I'd also think Alberto is probably also going back and putting in his own experience and his own thoughts about it. Um, the other key thing is that Jordan did the same. So uh, they're both ready. And we haven't talked about the women's race yet, but Jordan just crushed the field. That's a perfect segue, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, Jordan wins going away by over a minute. 106.35. Against Alephine Tillyamook, who we've talked about on this, who is She's in legit. great shape and legit and ready for a big New York City marathon. So, I so, mean. So, Jordan crushed it, although if you extrapolate her time, it works out to like a 110 half. So, it's not like these women were going crazy, crazy fast. Right. But Tillyamook got second, 107.49. Sarah Hall, who, you know, is kind of always in the mix at these races, no matter what happens, was third in 107.53. And then Becky Wade, Rice University grad, in fourth. Stephanie Bruce in fifth. I know Talia Muck and Stephanie Bruce are both doing New York. Becky's doing Chicago with Jordan. But obviously this bodes well for Jordan and her prep for Chicago. What do you think? I mean, I'm, I, I think that uh, before this race, I really didn't think Jordan had a chance to win at Chicago. I'm not tipping my hat on my picks yet, but um, I didn't really think she had a shot, even with her great race at Boston. I just didn't know if she would, if she just, especially who she's going to be racing, as we'll talk about that later. But um, after this race, I think that she's, um, that she has, she's in the hunt. She's in the mix, and she needs to be considered as a potential, uh, I wouldn't call her the favorite, but I do think she's somebody who is definitely going to be in the mix in the race. And, um, and she's shown to be, and from a marathoning perspective, wise way beyond her years in terms of patience and willingness to let the race come to her. Um, I think that this race result for Jordan was um, probably equally good as it was for as it was for um, Galen. Although Galen's to the general public um, might have looked like not quite as great a race because he almost got beat, but he almost got beat by a you know, 27 flat, 10K guy, so, <laughs> right. or, or, or there around about, so. Yeah, a guy coming off his 10K PR. Yeah, and it's always interesting, too, with these kinds of races, too, because you never know where they are in marathon training. Oftentimes, they're, they're training through, as they say, these races, so they might have a big mileage week and do this race as a part of it with the intention of trying to be fatigued going into a race effort to get a certain training result for their ultimate race, so... You never quite know where any of these folks fit on that spectrum. I would have thought Tolia Muck would have given her more of a challenge. Mm -hmm. And so that might tell you that she's a little bit tired moving up to the marathon. She's raced it before, but she hasn't in a little bit. But it'll be interesting to see. It's too bad that Jordan doesn't have more American competition in Chicago. But as, as we said, we'll preview all of that in episode 41. The one other result I wanted to mention from the 20K Results is Shilhe Kip, former <laughs> Chicago, Chicago, Colorado, Buffalo steepler, mm -hmm. who came behind Emma Coburn, ultimately made an Olympic team as as steeplechase athlete athlete in London. Moving up in distance and to the roads, she got ninth in this race. So, you know, not necessarily super impressive on paper. But perhaps it is impressive for somebody who's moving from steeple to 20K, 3K to 20K. That's a pretty big jump and a big transition in training. Any thoughts on Chalet's performance? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where she's been. Um, here we have American 
women going one two at the world championship and we would have put kip in that in that in that category as being um she was not that far behind uh emma in a lot of those races and so um you know maybe she's been hurt maybe she's been off the off the radar but it's great to see her back it's uh maybe she's getting reinvigorated who knows i'm not sure exactly what she's doing but it was a solid race result for her she you know she was running at colorado when i was coaching at texas so i got to see her race a lot and she wasn't the greatest cross-country runner she was just a solid steady runner so this race result is actually pretty pretty far ahead of what she kind of was as a cross runner she was definitely a better track athlete so anyway so we'll see where she goes perhaps a marathon's in her future with kara goucher as a training partner there in boulder so next topic on current events and then we'll get to our series Final episode in the series on mental training. We want to talk about David Torrance. There was a sad, sad, sad news in the running, elite running world last week where we learned that David Torrance, who is an Olympian and elite level miler and 5K runner from, trains with Peru, but has dual citizenship, American as well as Peruvian, died, was found dead in a pool in Flagstaff where he trains frequently cause currently unknown although there are some suspicions that he perhaps had an aneurysm i guess his dad had an aneurysm Mm -hmm. that killed him at the same age tragically and so david was well liked in the elite world had just competed at the world championships for peru has competed in the olympics at rio raced as an american for a while and competed in a lot of u.s races was beloved by his colleagues as an elite runner just for his energy his dedication and it was so sad to lose him sure certainly and the story is incredibly tragic and we'll talk in a second about Kyle Merbers who's one of his friends in the elite world tribute to him with a mile this past weekend at the Hoka the Hoka One Mile but I wanted to read from Nick Willis he posted Nick Willis is a a two-time Olympic medalist in the 1500 So more decorated than David, more talented than David. But he wrote, I thought, a particularly poignant Facebook post about David after he learned of his death. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it in in its entirety because I think there's some important messages from this that would help us all sort of make sure that David's death was not in vain. But Nick said this. He said, the first time I met David Torrance was the 2008 Fifth Avenue Mile where he was wearing a $5 plain white tank top with a big space for rent written in black marker i stood next to him on the starting line thinking who is this guy david turned out to be one of the toughest most professional competitors i've ever raced he was never afraid to get after a fast pace and mix it with those who had much better credentials than him up to that point david did a lot of his hard training by himself and i've been privileged to witness some incredible intervals he has run solo on hot sedona days i'm not sure i've ever met someone as disciplined with his training as david was especially that he did a huge amount of it on his own. He inspired me to no end in Flagstaff last year as we were both preparing for Rio. I will remember David most of all for his bright and energetic personality off the track. His smile and laugh were infectious and incredibly enjoyable to be around. He was never afraid of a good debate and wore his heart on his sleeve. I really appreciated that about David. You knew you were getting the real deal from him, which is not always the case with many of your competitors. So. Cool to me, cool, incredible, heartfelt post there from Nick on David's death. And as I read that, 
a couple of points of inspiration jumped out even through the sadness of the story. One is that Nick was legitimately inspired by David, a guy who didn't have the same accolades. He probably wasn't as talented. But this idea that you can inspire others even if you're slower than them, I think is a really important thing to embrace. But then also, of course, just the attributes of positivity and discipline and willingness to put yourself out there are incredibly impressive. And that was something I always saw in David and watching him as a fan. So I appreciated Nick's post. And to me, this is something where you never hate, you hate, you always hate to see somebody go too soon. But all we can do as those who have watched him is try to take some of those characteristics with us so that his memory lives on. Thoughts from you, Steve, on David? Rest in peace. I mean, I don't know what to say. I've, this <clears throat> this has made my heart heavy from the moment I heard it. Um, I only got to meet David once or twice and in a real cursory fashion. I didn't get to share too much with him or get to talk too much with him, but I think we would have been, uh, we would have been uh, kindred spirits in the fact that, as, as Nick Willis says, wasn't afraid to speak his mind and uh, always open to debate. I think that when I hear the other athletes that I've met and, and people I know who knew David, he's one of those guys that no one has a bad word about. He was beloved and loved by nearly everyone who knew him. And he brought something to the sport that I think um, gets missed in our ideas about these athletes that are just absolute superstars. I mean, David was incredibly talented and he came out of his running career at a time when American distance running wasn't really showing out in at its best and yet he constantly made races he constantly pushed he chose races from anything from a mile or an 800 all the way up to the 5k and he raced pretty savvily and in a pretty smart way nearly every race he ran but he was always willing to get out and get after it as nick said um so we'll miss those journeymen the the people like david who um, just did it. You could tell David did it for the love of the sport. Yeah, he was trying to make a living, and yeah, he was pubbing himself when he said this space for rent, but I think he was probably trying to be a little bit more about making a point that here we have people, if, if he were in the um, in the law field, if he had taken his talents to uh, the financial world, if he had worked on getting a PhD, he would be at the top of his game. He would be considered a lead, a leader, and and probably would have done much better. But he saw his passion and his skill set as being a distance runner, and he influenced and truly impacted the younger people around him and um, was always trying to make the people around him better. We talked about this recently, Chris said, uh, we had our, our Church of the Long Run last Saturday and I, my exhortation to our troops basically was really simple and really brief. I think pretty much everybody was a little surprised at how short I was in my talk, but it was asking people to elevate themselves and put themselves in a situation where they had to elevate, where they have to elevate their experience. And I think David is the epitome of someone who did that on a consistent basis. He was. And I think also as a fan, he's one of those names that probably people listening, most people don't know his name because our sport doesn't do a good enough, good enough job of telling the stories of people like him. But he's the type of guy that if you allow yourself to, to dig into this sport a little bit, he's the type of guy you can root for and be inspired by who's not going to get the headlines or may not win the race but might make the race and it's so important to dig underneath the surface of the podium to find those people segueing from that into 
Kyle Merber, one of his good friends in the mile, started a meet last year. I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, called the Long Island Mile, uh, sponsored by Hoka. Kind of one of these end of season miles, like New York, New York Road Runners has one Fifth Avenue Mile coming up as well, where the elites get to have a little bit of fun and compete in, in you know in ways that are just a little bit different. And this race particularly really tries to bring the fan element involved. Gets fan fans literally watching, standing on the track, and the meet went off. What was it yesterday? I think. I think it was last night. Last night. Last night. And pouring rain, absolutely pouring <laughs> rain. If you see the pictures, everybody's carrying or holding umbrellas, literally standing on the track watching, but it's a packed house watching this. And the fields were pretty legit. You had Chris O'Hare, Nick Willis, Johnny Gregoric, who competed at the Worlds. All four were in the final, the Gre- World Championships. Greg Ingalls <laughs> and, you know, Kyle Merber himself. Six guys went under four. Chris O'Hare won it with a 356 over Nick Willis and 356 as well on a pouring, absolutely terrible conditions day, which is a pretty impressive time. But, and and so Kyle had announced that this would now be called the David Torrance Mile in celebration of David's life. And I think they they celebrated the way David would have wanted by putting on a first-class meet in crappy conditions, but everybody ran fast in spite of those. And on the women's side, you had Emily Apari of BAA, unbelievably, 428. BAA win the men, BAA win the women. Exactly, yep. 428 on that, on that track in those conditions with Brenda Martinez just behind her and Hannah Fields, Emily and Field rounding out the top four. Pretty cool event. And I got to say hats off to Kyle Merber for, one, having the vision to pull this together a couple years ago, but two, bringing the energy to it that it seems to have gotten and it's cool to see David's memory honored in this kind of way. Yeah, my one statement about this was the probably the very the best result. Although, you know, for Chris O'Hare to get a win over Nick Willis is a, is a big thing. But down in fourth place on the women's side, Emily Enfield, fresh off a World Championship 10K, runs a 430. A 430. That is that is amazing. Right. And uh, I don't know, folks, but as the the coach slash ath- former athlete in me looks at that and says, I would have looked at that field and would have said, WTF, what the fuck is Emily and Field doing in this race? And then she gets fourth. I didn't see how the race played out. I haven't watched the video yet, but my guess is she was at or near the front. I think Brenda probably took the race from the beginning, but my guess is she was right there most of the time. And dude, serious hats off to that. Emily Infield 430 performance in the pouring rain. Uh, it's really, really solid effort. Shows her range and definitely potential for the future. Speaking of Bowman Track Club quickly, there are rumors not confirmed yes, yet we've heard, that I've heard. The, the great Kate Grace may be heading that way to train with Schumacher in the Bowman Track Club. Which opens up all kinds of interesting ideas about what's going to be happening with that group and maybe with the successes that they had at the World Championships Jerry will be getting a little larger roster, perhaps. Maybe he'll he'll roll out um, and get a few more of those athletes like Mohamed and others who are not Americans necessarily, but are part of our system. And and I'm just it's exciting to see her go there. It saddens me deeply that she's not running with with Drew. I mean, Drew is a close friend of mine and um, one of the great coaches in the United States, certainly one of the most unheralded coaches who does a phenomenal job. He made Kate. He resurrected her experience and got her to the place where she is now. But how can you 
argue with an opportunity to train with a group of people that she'll run with. It also is interesting to say, is she flirting with the move up? Is there something else we're seeing here? Or does the training that she's been doing with Drew indicate that maybe she brings something to the plate, uh, especially as you look at um, the roster that he has on the women's side in terms of making them, you know, Shlaine's probably going away, not much longer going to be in that group for at least probably not for another three or four years. Um, but so are they going to be making a play on the women's side to come back down? And it gives great opportunities for uh, growth in that group and, and wider ranges. So it's super interesting to see what will happen there. We will see. We'll keep you posted on K grace, but again, rest in peace. As Steve said to David Torrance, hopefully all of you in listening to that can take a little bit of inspiration with you from his life. All right, let's talk about our main topic now, transitioning. As I said at the top, we're going to dive into our last episode on mental training. This will be our eighth in the series, talking about the practical application of many of the concepts that we've talked about. And so we're going to kind of do this in two parts. Part one, we're going to talk about different ways you need to internalize some of these concepts. And then part two, we'll talk about some of the practical applications of that in the context of a few of the specific tools that we've already talked about in previous episodes. So we'll start with that first bit, which is there are four different ways that we've kind of identified that you have to internalize some of these concepts. And there really is kind of a progression of those from one to four. And so it's not that there's four different independently disconnected elements that you've got to internalize, but you kind of kind of take this progression of steps through these mental training skills. The first one, Steve, is just kind of learning the concept or developing, as you put it, developing this skill in isolation. So talk about what that means. So basically, these four principles are, it may seem like it's a little late in the game to bring them up, um, but they were but when I when we Chris and I sat down and we made this initial sort of foray into how we were going to loosely pattern this, this came near the end of our entire thought process. It was well, we know the skills we need to get, we need to know the things that we need to do, and um, we sort of did the macro, big picture from the discussion of you know vi- statement of purpose and getting your vision right and doing all those other pl- pieces of the puzzle. Um, but this piece, it's almost like, okay, now I've got the concepts, I've got the ideas down. I even know I've got it sort of got the skinny on the actual skills I'm trying to learn. Well, how do I do this? And I've had athletes now who have worked through these podcasts and some who have talked to me about these concepts as we've worked through them in their training process over, over the course of the last few months. Um, sort of how do I actually physically implement it? and take this and, and put it into, into practice. And so my first thing, I kind of break this down, Chris, as you said, developing, the first one is developing the skills in isolation. I, I like to say this, you got to learn your stuff first. And learning, it's kind of like an analogy of playing guitar. Anybody who's learned to play an instrument, um, you don't just pick it up and start banging chords. You don't get onto the, comp- under the piano and start playing Rachmaninoff right off the bat. You have to tinkle the ivories. You have to bang away. You have to actually learn the skill to get the 
the neuromuscular recruitment to get the mental ability to kind of think through what the concept that you're trying to learn is. And you develop, you learn, and we almost all learn and do our best learning when we're in isolation. When we're in a quiet place, in a place where we can get some time to ourselves, we can minimize distractions and, over, and, and, and minimize the number of, of outside influencers on us and really say, I want to learn this concept. You don't want to learn to play the guitar in a, in a guitar, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a concert scenario or in a, an open mic situation. You Wait a second, let me see if I can learn how to finger my G chord. No, you, you should already have known where your finger placements are and work through it. And you're only going to do that in a quiet place where you've got the chance to fail and a chance to learn. And learning means not doing it perfectly right the first time. And um, so really think it's incredibly important to look at this. And another thing that's important, Chris, as we talk about these four concepts, I personally think they have to be done in this order. Someone can, I'm, I'm open to somebody else disagreeing with me and probably, and, and maybe bringing it to our attention that we, that you don't do in this order. But I thought a lot about this and I really do think it needs to be done in this order. Again, from the analogy of playing a musical instrument, you've got to learn to play the chord or play the instrument before you get and do it in another situation. So the first thing is you got to learn these, this skill and developing these skills solo on your own. Before we dive into what that means and look like, it looks like I wanted to give us a, a small anecdote. anecdote. I just heard a John Mayer interview. It was actually on another podcast <laughs> that I occasionally listen to. And he was talking about a song idea that he had. And this this song he was referring to is still still feel like her man or your man, referring to an ex girlfriend, and he he had the the idea the concept in his head at one point talking to his therapist where he said those words he's like I feel like I still feel like her man, talking about his own life experience, and in his head it instantly clicked that's a song, and so he talked about in that interview how. He went into a hole for three days to write the song, but for the first 24 hours of writing that song, he wouldn't allow himself to sing anything. It was all about ideas, concepts, getting stuff written on paper, but not playing any, any notes or singing any words because he didn't want to taint the idea of the song with unfinished work or thoughts. And so as you were talking there, that kind of reminded me of his of his reflection on writing that song because this is sort of like you don't want to taint your idea to your ability to implement any of these tools until you've spent time really learning what it's about. No, you're going to fuck it up if you do. You're going to you're going to get too advanced or move too quickly and not really have been reflective. And um I think that that's, you know, we're about to talk about these things, but it is really important that you and, and, you know, we're not saying, I'm not saying, okay, get yourself in isolation for, you know, four days, right? Not all of us have the same luxury that a John Mayer has to, to, to get that kind of block of time to lock off. But you do need to do that consistently. And I think as people start to look at their run training and they want to ap apply running mental training principles in their run training, they need to take a window of time, be it 15, 20, 30 minutes, you know, the same amount of time you might take to meditate, same time you might take to work on a, if you're a, if you've got a spiritual path that you might take for quiet reflection time, 
whatever time that is, you need to do the same thing for your sport. And you need to sit there and say, all right, this is the time for this day or this is the time in this week. Not necessarily you have to do it every day. But this is the time where I'm going to work through these mental training concepts from the big picture idea first. And this is pick a, pick a topic. We'll go through this in the second section. But pick a topic. Let's say we're going to use self-talk. And just go through initially. It's like, what are the things I would do? What are the things I could say? And you have to do that first. Not bouncing that idea off of someone else, but bouncing it off yourself first. Okay, so what do you need in order to do that? What are the key ingredients of giving yourself the right space to learn these concepts? So back in my crazy party days, when I was a, a bit of a bit of a crazy party man, we used to talk a lot about uh, about set and setting when we were when we, we were, when we were doing the ethnogens or we were doing the. With the going off the deep end with the big stuff, right? The plants. The plants, correct. Yeah. Uh, to be sure that you understood that the set and setting were important. Uh, in this case, I think the setting is the first thing we're talking about. It's like, what is the place you're going to be doing this? And you need to really consider trying to find a place that allows you to practice these tools um, and, in, and will encourage a positive outcome. So, you know, at your local coffee shop at you know, 5.30 on the a- in the afternoon, probably not the most conducive setting to do this. Now, if it's the only time and place that you can carve out to do it, go for it. Put a set of headphones on and try to zone out. But it's optimal to try to find a, a setting that allows you to feel relaxed, comfortable, and in a place where um, you, can, you can dig deep and you can ask yourself some big questions and that you don't have to feel uncomfortable that someone might come up and talk to you, someone might come up and mess with you. Late at night, early in the morning, I frequently hear about people, meditators, who you know, they know, they set a set time on certain days of the week or certain times of the day that they know that they're not going to be awoken by family members, they're not going to be messed with, and they've got a chance to, to sort of be reflective in their own space. And so setting is really, really crucial Preferably, the setting is also one that can be repeated as writing. People who write a lot, they'll tell you they get the best work done when they choose a similar setting, if not the exact same setting. Sometimes they can choose a similar setting. I remember when I was doing a lot of traveling, when I coached at the University of Texas, I spent a lot of time reading books. And I also realized, oh, wait, I've been wanting to do, get into this meditation thing. And I did a, for about two or three years, I was pretty consistent with my meditation because I was at hotel rooms all the time with nothing to do, waiting for two o'clock in the afternoon to roll around. So we would get all the girls in the in the van, drive over to the meet, and get started to 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 train to get ready to race. And so I'd have this free time to do it. So settings like that, whether it's in your own home in a hotel room, um, getting to work before anybody else does at your work environment. If you've got a door that you can close and get set your setting up right, I think that's the, probably one of the most important things that you can do. You said set and setting. I think this one piece of the set part is that you also have to go in with an open mind. Sort of like, if I'm going to read a book and I don't know what that book is about or if it's any good or not, I open up that book with sort of no no preconceived notions about whether I'm going to like it or not or no ideas in my head about what it's going to be or turn out like or how I want to think about it at the end. And I think sometimes, and people may have listened to our training tools episodes and sort of rolled their eyes at some of the things. I know even talking (laughs) to Gene and Ardith, they were a little skeptical on the purpose piece. And so you can't predetermine how you're going to react or what you're going to get out of some of these things. You have to go in, pick one, and 
set yourself up so that you have an open mind and you let it kind of come in the way it's going to come in. You may find ultimately that it's not the perfect thing for you or that doesn't have the application that you thought it might for others, but you got to give yourself a chance. And I think oftentimes we either don't give it, don't give it a chance because we kind of pass judgment or dismiss something too quickly or so our set isn't right or we get the setting wrong or we don't give ourselves the space for the setting at all especially in the day of smartphones when something beeps on that phone you look at it and then suddenly you're distracted and onto something else yeah we're we're this is a missing you know the idea this this is a missing link i think in in terms of the way that we're developing as a species generally but also for runners you're not going to run with that distracted space you're not going to have your phone i mean you do have your watch but it doesn't give you as many different intels and you know chris when they talked about set and setting it is mindset that they talk about um you know the set was basically mindset and being sure that you were good and right with things before you jumped into that oblivion um the other thing about the setting and so i'm going to go into like two other things that are really important with this developing the skill in isolation one is making sure that you've got that setting that's conducive to um what you're doing. It's not just the right place, but it needs to be a place where it's quiet, um, a place where you feel safe because you're going to probably do a little wrestling with the angel during this time. You're probably going to be um, asking yourself some questions and maybe trying to avoid things. And you want to be in a place where you feel like you can, you can stretch. And also as I've, as I used in my analogy of learning to pay, play guitar, I mean, I, I couldn't figure out how to, how to play a G chord. I couldn't get my fingers right. I couldn't get my hand placements right. I have short, stubby fingers. It was hard to play that instrument. And so a lot of times when I was playing it, I needed, I wasn't going to play it in front of other people. I wanted to play it in a quiet place where I could hear what my mistakes were so I could learn enough to overcome them. Finally, I think you need to be, um, set yourself up so that you can get work done. I think one of the things I, 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 I learned when I, was, when I try to write sometimes, I'll, I'll realize that I'll bring a lot of tools to the table and a lot of them are just things that are going to distract me. Or I'll think, oh, I should have brought one extra tool to the table and then go wandering and bumbling about the house, killing 10 or 15 minutes of quality time I could have been working on. So I come into that space ready to go, ready to be to do work and you probably can squeeze this down into 10, 15, 20 minutes. It doesn't need to be a lot of time. Have a pen, have a clean, a pen, a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper and get to work. Um, and we'll talk, you know, in the next section about what that work might look like, but you got to get to work. Repetition is also important here. And I think as we get to that point, it's important to also note for people that, you know, you can do it quickly, but you can also let it linger. It's like, don't be rushed. Don't, you know, give yourself 30 minutes to meditate or learn on something. And then that's it. Because <laughs> you kind of have to sometimes let it marinate and let things come to you and maybe wander a little bit as a part of your thought process. Or maybe, you know, go read something that kind of gives you more context for the given to topic. So. You want to do it repeatedly and give yourself the opportunity, especially on any given skill or topic, to kind of learn at your own pace, right? So Absolutely. you're not rushing. Any thoughts on that and timing? You know, 
I mean, I think we're all, you know, we're all we're all subject to the way the moon and the stars move us, and the way that our our work lives move us, and we're and the way our family lives move us. Um, and so usually, these things are best done early in the morning or later in the evening. Um, but I think that's just so individual at this day and age with people's work schedules and the way that people have a chance to work now. Um, the key is do it. Um, get yourself set on a regular routine where you're willing to to go into this these concepts. And um, you know we're going to talk about this from the set from the the standpoint of 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 one particular skill set or or a variety of skill sets that you're trying to learn. But be willing to in this time frame as you get as you kind of catch a uh, catch a a a, a a dry phase or a, or a place where maybe you're feeling uncomfortable or maybe that you just kind of blah, be willing to have the ability to, to maybe work on a variety, have a couple of different of these skill sets that you want to learn. And maybe if one's not floating your boat at the time, have another one that you can jump to and, and start working on if it makes you a little more excited and see where that takes you. This time is this, this first step, this, this in and isolation is about learning and you're trying to learn the thing that you want, you were trying to learn a skill and you have to want to do the thing to do it. Um, many kids who are forced to learn how to play piano or play an instrument, they know it didn't really take because they never really wanted it to do it. So you want to make sure that it's something you want to do. So feel free to jump around a little bit um, as your, this is sort of like the, the exploration phase of it. Um, but you've got to do it and consistently do it. And you'll, you'll fall into You'll fall into getting a skill set that you get better and better at, and you'll want to see that return on your investment, especially as you jump into the second step of it. One question people might be asking themselves is, okay, what do the activities look like in this piece, in this learning piece? And as I process it, there's sort of three categories. There's input elements, there, which I'll kind of give examples as we go. There's input elements, there's processing elements, and then there's output elements. Input elements are listening, learning, taking stuff in. So listening to our podcast on one of these tools, perhaps reading a book that we've referenced or that you found that might cover the same topic. It could, it could be reading an article, reading a magazine, reading another athlete's perspective on that given topic. So kind of taking in information Second piece, processing, allowing your mind to kind of meditate or roll over that information to understand it, which could mean you're writing stuff down, kind of getting your thoughts on paper as it relates to that topic. Could mean going back maybe and rereading or re-listening to things so you can kind of process it and fully understand how you're thinking about that topic. And then you have outputs, which might mean, and we'll give examples of this as we get to the application of these tools, it might mean producing something that you use, like a purpose statement, as we've talked about before. So those are some examples. If you're wondering, what am I doing? Am I just sitting on my hands for, you know, 15 minutes, an hour breathing? Am I breathing? There could be some of that too, as a part of the processing, just sitting still and thinking, letting kind of your mind go blank so that it fills up again. So those are some examples on the learning side. That's step one. Let's get to step two. So you go from sort of developing the skill in isolation to what we're going to call developing the skills in your mind from learning to knowing. So sort of kind of taking in the information to really getting it. Talk about step two, Steve. 
So this one's kind of like, um, I don't know. It, some might consider it a redundant, not necessarily redundant, but that, that, that this is sort of in some kind of nebulous way station between point one, which is learning, and, 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 and point three, which is living it. Um, but knowing it, I like to call this step as being knowing. And what that means is that you know how you now have that skill set that you were looking to learn understood. You have a clear understanding of what it is you learned, and so therefore you know it. Uh, in my analogy of playing a guitar, it's like I tried to set the fingers into a G chord, and I tried and tried and tried, but as and, and failed many times, but eventually I could get my hand into that position, and I found I could get to that position on call. Um, and maybe this is, it, I think of this as a distinctive difference between the first, learn, the first phase of um, learning because you're proving out what you learned. So this is a, I've got something to show for the work that I've done. I've got something to show that I learned the thing I learned. And um, you need to be able to clearly delineate that. Um, in order to do the final two steps, this step needs to be there. And this is a place where a lot of people are full of shit. And a lot of people are, they're not, they, they think that they're, they're still in the learning phase. They're not in the known phase yet. And, um, you know, you, it, you have, it has to be able to pass that sniff test, Chris. <laughs> yes. And, but is it fair to say, though, that the transition from learning to knowing can happen in that same space? So Correct. As That's a part of the process of learning, suddenly you get to a point where, okay, I get it. Well, I guess what I like to say is it's learning to find, to be skillful with the means of what you've learned. You need to be skillfully, you need to be able to do something with it. Uh, for an example, it's like uh, you, don't, you don't use a hammer as to, to screw something in. You don't use a screwdriver to nail in a nail. You can use a screwdriver to nail in a nail, but you don't really want to. You want to use the right tool. And so learning is being sure, learning is showing, learning is knowing that you use that tool and that you can use that tool, but knowing means you're going to use that tool effectively. You're going to use it appropriately. You're going to know when to use it. And, you know, maybe learning chords is learning the D chord, learning the G chord. But if you want to play a Neil Young song, you have to play the D and the G at two different times and you need to be able to transition between the two of them. And so you know how to, you, you know how to do, you, you've learned how to do the chords, but do you know how to use them skillfully? Do you know how to take that and implement it? And I know maybe this one is just a little bit sort of nebulous. Um, but if you don't know how to do this, I'm, I promise you'd be wasting a lot of valuable time and a lot of energy. Um, and so, I think when we get to the point of actually showing practical application here, you know, using a skill set to, to doing that, that we'll be able to make this a little bit clearer, Chris. Um, but basically, the main thing is that you've got the ability to take this thing that you learned and be able to use it effectively in the next step, which is living it out. I think of this as sort of a checkpoint between one and three, where... It may or may not be this defined period of time, but it's it's at least a checkpoint to say, do I know enough to be ready to live it out? And for me, there's a couple of things that I would want 
to see true before I went to step three. One is I have to believe in it. I have to believe that the skill we're talking about will work for me. The second thing is I have to understand it and how, and I have to understand it, how it relates to me. So, you know, if it's self-talk as an example, and we'll kind of go into more on that in a second in terms of how self-talk might apply across, across all of these, is I have to believe that it's a tool that will work for me. And then I have to understand the way I can apply it to myself. Then I can say, all right, I'm ready to go to step three. Until I get to that point, then I'm still learning. Well, and sometimes you'll go, you'll think that you've passed through the learn and know phases and start implementing it in in live tests out on the roads. Um, and then you'll realize quickly, well, I don't really have this as a skill set because I'm bumbling with it and I don't have any facility and I'm not operating at my best with it. It's best for me to go back and learn some more to the point where I actually know that these concepts or that the, the skill set that I'm trying to, I've got it down. And it may be that, that it takes acting through and, and using it skillfully in real life, in real life training for you to, to, to know that you've passed that threshold. And um, so it could be that I, I do think of this much more on a continuum, Chris, that, that you're, you've got point A, which is starting this learning process, sort of moving through to the end of that is I can actually skillfully do this thing. And then somewhere you have to then take that and apply it in real life, which is step three. And so two, but you may not, you may not succeed at it. You may fail at it. And you realize I got to go back and learn more. So maybe skill set this this point two is more along the lines of a continuum between one and two in a in playing back and forth but for sure you're not going to be in this known state or knowing how to do a thing in the first two days that you've started working on it which is a good way a good segue to number three and i think your point is well taken which there may be some looping that happens here or iterating that happens here step three is developing the skills in the body or living it. So we've learned it. We know it. Now we've got to live it, practice it in space through movement. What does that look like? So this is, this is the real deal. This is the part that I think that all, most of our listeners have been waiting for us to get to. Or, um, and what we, we've done this as we talked about bigger pictures, but I think they maybe have been waiting for us to do it um, in a way that's clearly indicated. Um, and that's you test, you road test these points. Um, and you, 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 you choose real-time training sessions, um, whether they're easy runs or quality workouts, long runs, low-key races, or even the big show. I think for many people, they don't even really do this practical application, this final, final skill in the body until they're, you know, a halfway through a marathon. Um, it's way better to do it before then. But this is the point where the rubber meets the road and you are actually working through these concepts. And so I kind of look at this as the got three or four, really four big things that you need to take away as we're, as we're walking through getting these skills, learning, getting them through the body and living them out. And the first thing is something we've repeated many, many times on this podcast, podcast, Chris, in various ways about this mental training. And that's take some small steps, work on applying the skill selectively at first, like, try to um, only do it on a quality workout day 
or try to only do it on an easy run day. Pick a time and a place where you um, will be able to do just a little bit of work on it because it's not likely that you're going to be proficient enough at this skill to sustain a long, focused approach to it. Um, and you're going to want to test the waters, see how you do with it, back, back off, see how it played out, get some experience from it, and then maybe write down some notes and some experiences of what actually happened to you, and then come back at it again. So you really want to take some small steps. You want to take your time. Um, you know, you want to try to work on it. Maybe, you know, if I were going to work on some self-talk, I might try to say two self-talk concepts or, or statements or sentences that I was going to work on, and I would maybe rotate those one or two in a consistent process, maybe twice during a run, and see what played out. Was my run any different? Or do it at the beginning of the run before I did anything else. Or maybe wait and then on another training session, do it at the very end of it. But now I'm road testing self-talk in a way that I can find an authentic voice for my self-talk process to be valuable and, and, and to work for me. When we talk about visualization sometimes, Chris, we're always a lot about how, but okay, I can sit there and visualize it, but what happens when, I, when the rubber meets the road? What happens when I'm out there on the road? Well, use your workouts, your long runs, your easy runs to figure those things out and take it slow and keep repeating the process over and over and over again until it becomes second nature. And it's sort of in this phase, Chris, where you're like, like on the end of the knowing, right? And, and, and really showing that you're living it out. You're still playing in that knowing zone of having it in your mind and taking it out of your mind and into your body. So once you've tested it in small ways, what's next? Do you go with some easy wins or do you go, do you go straight to the hard stuff? No, you, you, I don't, I would, I would, it'll depend on people's nature. I know some athletes that are going to go straight to the hard stuff, but I think that it's just like we talk about with why we do workouts. I'm consistently writing training protocols that my athletes can succeed at. And then every once in a while I throw at them a workout that they don't think that they can accomplish. That's all seeded by the fact that I gave them successful scenarios. And so you want to create successful scenarios where you can play these things out. So if I were suggesting to someone who was going to do um, this, we have a, a workout we just did today for my athletes that are getting ready for the California International Marathon. It's, we've done this now a number of times. It's, we do it every, nearly every six weeks. It's called the Aussie 5K. And it's basically a little mini race. And they're... They're, they're running 200 meters at their dead-on 5K pace, and then they're doing what we call a float, which is a flexible sort of variable pace thing. And this is a great time for an athlete to work on some mental training tools. But I would say, let's create a successful scenario where you're going to work on that through the first, let's, we're going to do self-talk, we're going to do on some, we're going to pick some things that you can work on there in the first four to six laps of this. And then we're going to jettison it, move on, and just really focus on what the, what's going actually on in your body and, and work it through because it's going to be hard for you to be focused on multiple things at one time. So it's like sort of create a successful scenario where the athlete will be able to have a chance to, su- to succeed at it, see some taste of success, but not feel like if they don't see it all the way through to the very end of that workout that they failed. Um, and then, you know... It, but the, but the challenge with that, Chris, is that athletes come in so many different stripes. You know this as a coach. You know this in your own running is that you're an athlete who likes to see successful scenarios. And so for you, you would look at this and say, yes, this is a smart, concrete way to do this. I've got another couple of athletes that, that we both know of in my group who will be, oh, 
F that. I'm just literally want to just let's if it's really going to work, if it's really going to do results, it should hold water. Right. So I think it kind of depends on the individual. But I do think especially as you go into some of these things like like visualization, which are very hard to do. Creating successful scenarios is 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 really, I think, an important part of the process. So let's take your example and get concrete for a second again as it relates to me. So tomorrow I'm racing Zilker Relays four times two and a half miles. Three other partners. I've got a two and a half mile leg. It'll be nice for Texas, but still 86 or 7 degrees at the start when we start at 6.30 p.m. By the time people hear this, this race will have already passed. But if you were going to tell me how to work on self-talk within the context of that Zilker Relays experience, knowing that this is sort of an early season rust buster of sorts for me after a long time from having a real race, what would you say? I would say it, w- it would build this into my race plan for you. And my first race, my first discussion and statement to you would be in my race plan, which is your, your race strategy, which sort of fits outside of the mental training stuff we've talked about. It's an integral part, but it's not, people don't look at it that way. I'd say get out fast the first 800. You know, get out fast the first 800. And the best way for you to do that effectively is to know where your 800 meter point is or consciously look at your watch at the 800 point meter point. And then what I would say is, so what's your positive reinforcer self-talk when you're in danger? What's your 23 mile of the marathon thing you want to work on and work on it right after, say it to yourself right after the first 800 meters. So immediately have it keyed up so that you, and and that first 800 meters, I mean, you're kind of getting after it. You're Mm -hmm. in faster than 5k mode, you know, but you're not sprinting. You're not doing something stupid, but you're getting out there and it's going to be hot. You're probably not running leg one, right? So you're going to have a lot of bodies around you. You're not going to really know who to go chase. So you're going to have to be self-sufficient and look at your watch and, and get focused there. So I would go out fast the first 800, not worrying about anything, and then work one or two statements that you can rotate through that are positive that will help you stay the course as you think about later on in the race. And then you're road testing it. You're road testing a low-key event. You're probably going to get about to the mile to the mile and a half, and you won't be thinking about those very much. But you'll know whether or not they're going to work for you. You'll know whether that, that trigger or maybe it's just learning that the rhythm of that language, that it's a four-syllable statement that, that will work for you, but a seven-syllable statement won't. You know, even that might be a success, that you're not necessarily road testing the exact language you're going to use, but what the right rhythm for that is for you. I'll never forget the day that I realized, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can, will work for me. It's never failed me. It's always worked for me. And it was road testing it in a track race um, of a long distance and where I was out on the front by myself and I needed it and it was boom it was that rhythm that got me and I found it because of because I was willing to be open to it so that's a way I would utilize self-talk in that circumstance one thing as I think about me applying that approach is I'm generally pretty good in the first 800 but when I hit that red line you know, maybe at that point, I tend to kind of go back into my comfort zone for maybe the next mile, mile and a half. And then once I can smell the finish, start kind of digging again. So for me, that middle of maybe not thinking in my first instinct, as you were talking, was to think relax, which is probably the wrong one, because that'll st- that'll put me back into my like half marathon, 10K comfort zone. But really more, it's like, stay on it. Yes. You know, don't, 
let go, you know, like don't let off the gas, just keep, keep on the gas and keep that intensity up through that middle section of the race. So I've got some homework to do. To yeah. And it that, lets you, that language it, right. it lets you look at it and say, okay, I'm, I've got a, and, and the nice thing is, you know, how many times have I said this, Chris, a marathon and a 5k are really similar races. And this race distance you're running, it's two and a half miles, but it's pretty much a 5k. Right. So, you know, it, you can kind of look at it that way and say, when I'm 800 meters in, I'm at that point in a race where we're, where I'm really locked and loaded on my plan. Um, are you clear about your what your race plan is for that race? And so you can line up kind of in timing um, one or two statements that might work for you that might jog you out of that tendency to relax. That's good. I'm going to use it. And we'll report back. So, so first you give yourself the opportunity to try it in relatively safe scenarios where you can have success. Then, and maybe for some, you, jo- you go right to jumping to kind of the hard stuff, which might be a really intense lead-up race. It could be the race itself. It could be a really tough workout where you know things are going to get hard for you in the intense part in the training program. Anything different when you get to kind of really testing it? Now, I don't think that there's... I think at this point in time is the point where too many ideas or too many concepts or too many mental training tools you're trying to work on or skill sets you're trying to work out are problematic. It's time to get to this, to narrow it down, fine tune what it is you're actually trying to work on. This is where knowing your strengths and weaknesses is important. And we always talk about, you know, work your weaknesses first and work your strengths late. So as you get there into that challenging phase, as I'm talking to my folks getting ready to run Chicago, as I'm talking to my folks that are getting ready to run Twin Cities, what I'm talking to them about is now going back to those things that they're really good at. And so, um, when you do these big challenges, it's you want to choose the mental training tool that you've been working on that you think you've got, and you want to test it, and you want to see so that you can refine. If you fail at it and you don't get it quite right or it doesn't seem to be working at you, working for you, you still have a little time to fine-tune it, a little, little bit of time to turn it into something that, that eventually becomes second nature that you don't have to think about. So what I would say at this point is as you go into that phase of really challenging yourself with this particular tool or this particular skill, be cognizant that you want to be moving towards uh, uh, mastery, towards a a good level of facility at it and fine-tuning that into a strength rather than suddenly saying, oh, I'm going to jettison my self-talk at this point in time and I'm going to work on uh, uh, overcoming fear. Well, if you didn't work on that, this you're only doing that because you want to avoid it. So you try to finish through and, and, and turn it into an asset so that it'll be useful to you as you're standing on the starting line, um, getting ready to embark on the, the big race that you've got planned. It's also important to note here that you might fail as a part of this, right? Hopefully. Hopefully that's what, you know, when I write big race plans, when I write, write re- big race workouts for people, God, I always get super nervous when they nail it. You know what I mean? It's always, it always, <laughs> me too. it always makes me nervous because I'm like, oh, did I, did I time it wrong and they just peaked? Or are they really good at workouts and they're more comfortable in that zone? It doesn't happen this time of year because of the weather. If we, if we, the other thing, that, but, but when we do get a good weather day, like we could on this Saturday, you know, luckily we've got a drop down week this Saturday. I've said it repeatedly. I'm so thankful that this weather didn't blow in last weekend because my athletes got to have a really last tough workout that they mostly succeeded at. But each one of them walked away and said, this I needed to work on this. And I said, okay, now, you know, you can start getting your head ready. You know, one of my athletes, we've talked about him in the past. He's, he's had an incredible training cycle for the last year. He's in an incredible place to go race, but his confidence is a little shaken because he's had a little bit of an injury sort 
to crop up that he's been able to manage and he's handled really well, but it affected an optimal and perfect layout for the plan. And he said to me today, as we talked about his race plan, he said, I said, what are you really working on right now? He said, being ready for what it's going to feel like. You know, what it's going to feel like when he, he's running Twin Cities, so he's going to be climbing a hill and he's going to climb a hill for nearly three miles. And he's nervous and worried about it because not necessarily has all the work been done. And you know, my statement was go back and look at the work you have done, you know, re reinforce the positive things that have happened, but then get yourself ready to go to war because you're going to have to go to war. And, you know, he walked out with a little bit of a glee, a shine in his eye in the sense of saying, yeah, I see, I am, I am able to be on top of this. And there are some things I can still work on to help bridge that gap maybe between the perfect race plan setup and what's really going to happen out there on the race course. So you mentioned in our notes here that after you kind of practice this and some easier scenarios and then some more challenging scenarios, recognizing that there might be iterations through each of those that you have to take a little break. Why? Because you can only focus on one thing for so long. Even the most monofocused and toughest individuals have got to step away from that hard load and all that challenging. Because at the, by the time you've moved from small steps into successful scenarios and into challenging, you're tired. And, and you're, you're sick a little bit, whether you're in a cognizant of it or not, you're sick of it. Um, it's time to move on to another task. It's time to move on to another thing. It's time to go back to that quiet time and go into that isolation and pick a new skill set to work on. Whether you think you've actually nailed it or not, it doesn't matter. You went through that training cycle, completed that cycle with that thing in mind. You've challenged yourself, hopefully, epically at the big race. Hopefully, you had success. But even if you didn't, you don't go back and try to retool this. You step away. You move on. You take the break that we take just like we take in training. You do a hard, long training cycle, and then you do a nice, short break where you relax, kick your feet up, and don't focus on it. Otherwise, you're just going to be constantly thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking about the same thing over and over again. And you won't have that chance to acquire, to really, to really master that skill or really ingrain that skill into your body. We talk about this as sort of developing the skill in the body. The body needs a break. And what you might find that you will much more quickly go into this next phase, the last step in this, in this application process, much more cleanly when you come out of a break and you realize, wow, I got away from that a little bit. I'm ready to go. Plus, I think you'll find when taking breaks on these topics that you might find yourself inst instinctually start to use them. And then that's a sign, especially as you integrate other skills, that you're ready for step four, which we've used the warrior analogy throughout this series, step four really kind of brings that home, which is that it's all about integrating all of these skills as a warrior and being the thing. So it be kind of becomes a part of you. Going back to my John Mayer interview example, he was talking later in the interview. He was asked the question, do you practice? Do you still practice? Do you practice? Do you practice? <laughs> and he said, he said, occasionally I'll get the idea in my head that I need to practice and I'll go and plug in and get ready to play my guitar. And, and then he'll, he said, and then I realized like, no, I just played with the Grateful Dead last night. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. You know, I, 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 I'm, you know, I kind of live. They've never practiced. Yeah, I live the practice. Exactly. And he also in that 
discussion described the fact that sometimes when he's playing a song and every night, you know, he might play the same series of songs, but every time it comes out a little bit differently. And sometimes he looks down at his hands and he's like, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> I don't know where this is coming from, but it's good. Yes. And so it's become, the music has become a part of him to the point where he doesn't have to think about it anymore. It just happens. He just plays. And in your guitar analogy, you got, you were very far from very that far. point. Yes. But what does this fourth element of kind of being the thing you're trying to learn and know and live, what does that look like? It's, it, it, this is the simplest one because it can't be faked. It just is. And that's why I use the word be. It becomes a part of you. It's like mastery is achieved, you know? And um, it's almost like there's not much more to say about it. If you haven't gotten here yet, then you go back to point three. Um, and you keep working on that skill in real life scenarios till you get a little bit better at it and a little bit better and a little bit better at it. And you'll find as you do that, that eventually you're not thinking about it anymore. And that's the key thing. As you used in your analogy with John Mayer, he just wasn't thinking anymore. He was being, he was just acting as a guitar player would act in that scenario and being the best version of him in that moment. For our athletes out there, they will be executing mental, positive mental attributes or the attribute that they're working on in the context of the race without even knowing it. They might look back later and say, wow, at a key juncture, just at the right time, I heard the right thing. You think, we were talking about this with Amy Craig and her relationship with her coach and her coach happened to be the right place with a mile to go. He was probably about eight other places on the course. She didn't say jack squat about what he said at those moments. Why? Because she was in the zone, self-actualizing, doing it, managing it, and, and, and mastering those techniques that she didn't need that at that time. But when she did need the help and needed the external push, it was there for her, and she was ready. Why? Because it was already internal to her. So it's like she's able to, it, it, it's being able to just move, it's like being water. It's like, you know, it's like uh, uh, Bruce Lee's, analogies when you look at him he's like you're water right you don't you don't you don't force things things just move they just do what they do and this is the level of mastery and anytime anybody tries to articulate what mastery is it's sort of like i don't know how to say it but when i know it when i see it and i think that's what will happen with our athletes is that they've as they gain this facility they'll find themselves doing it and let me let me articulate this importantly because you're not gonna you'll find that you'll be able to do this at times when you're not thinking about it, it doesn't i don't want anybody to go around and you know you know, hang a shingle up on the internet and say, hey, I got mastery of self-talk. Come see, talk to me after working on it for six months or eight months, right? It's probably going to take much, much longer, but you will see that you are mastering that concept and you'll know you're mastering that concept when you haven't gone through and actually had to think too much about the process. Um, an important note to this, Chris, as we're wrapping up this, this sort of overall, this mental training techniques discussion, but also this specific four part process is that, again, these, this, while this needs to be done in this order, once you've worked on one of these skill sets in this order, you're probably going back to two and three and not really spending too much time in one. Um, you're probably going to be not learning so much because there's probably not a whole lot more to learn. Hopefully you've spent a considerable time and, and some focus time. You may some learn some nuances and some new tricks and some new ways to do it, but you're probably not learning anything really new conceptually about the, about the, the thing, the, the skill set that you're working on. 
but you might be finding different ways to implement it and different ways to live it. And so you may take you two race cycles, three race cycles before you're showing that, com that, that pretty consistent mastery of it. And so this is, again, on a continuum. It's not a guaranteed, okay, you get a gold star, you passed self-talk for runners mastery division. You know, you'll know it when you get a race result and you're not really exactly sure how it all played out, but the way that you looked at the way that you saw it worked out really well. And as you as you work on many of these attributes, many of these many skill sets over time, you'll find that um you will ebb and flow with it and get to the point where as you get tired of one as we said drop it for a little while, take a break. And then when you come back to it, whether it's one cycle later or two cycles later or in the next cycle, you're, you're fresh and ready to come back at it. And that mastery will just sort of sneak up on you and you'll, you'll know it when, you, when you're there. To me, there's great hope in this point because it shows or attests that if you spend time with something, if you practice it, then you can master it. And certain of these concepts that we've talked about that are hard – like certain fears that you might face, you can overcome, you can become a master of that fear if you allow yourself to go through this process. And there's great hope in that. I will say that I am someone who used to fear failure, who used to fear race outcomes, thinking that I might let someone down or that I wouldn't live up to my own expectations about my, for myself. I don't face that fear anymore because I've been through a version of this process. I'll say with visualization for me, it's something that's second nature. I don't have to think about when am I going to start my visualization process for this race? It just starts to happen because my body is kind of in tune with the fact that, you know, I need to start doing it at a certain point and I need to do it with a certain frequency and I need to do it a certain way, but I don't ever have to think about it. It just happens because that's something I've practiced and really worked on. So to me, there's great hope in this point that you can become a master if you allow yourself the opportunity to go through the first three steps. Now, let's, let's get practical for a second. We've talked a little bit about the practical application of these steps associated with self-talk. So let's, let's choose at least one more, Steve, and kind of run through it. And I'm going to pick, since we talked about it at the beginning, before we got on, overcoming limits as an example. Take us through four steps or three leading up to mastery on overcoming limits. What might that look like? In overcoming limits, the first, the first step, I mean, in all of them, the first step is always the hardest. Um, but this one, it's pretty clear because um, it, it, it will, you'll, overcoming limits is right. First step is you got to learn what those limits are. And in some cases, they'll be crystal clear to the athlete and they'll know what it is. They may have one or two. When, I, when we say overcoming limits, what we want to do in this practice is to pick one of them to overcome. Um, and I don't really think it matters whether you pick the one that's most scary or most difficult for you or if you choose one that's easy. I don't think that in the learning process, it really mass matters. You probably want to choose one that's a little bit easier if you have a shorter time frame before you want to, to, to try to have a level of skill set to be able to live it and, and to, to live it on a consistent basis in your, in your training. Um, you might not want to pick a limit um, that, you know, if you're getting ready for a race in October or, or October or December, you might not want to work on a really hard limit right now. You might want to give yourself a longer term. So I think the most important thing is sort of sit there and think through 
the conceptualization of what your limit is. If you can't come up with one, talk to somebody who knows you. If you have a coach, they're a great, I guarantee you, a good coach knows every single one of their athletes. They can pinpoint rather quickly a limitation that they have. Um, so if you don't have one, you can always go find that from another person. And you sort of, you, you sit down with that and you make a list of, of what you think those, that limit is, one or two or three or four of them. You, you hone down and you try to pick one and decide on one. That might take you a week or two weeks or three or four or five different sessions of sitting down and learning about what your limits are. Um, once you've got that, though, you're still, you need to then stay in that learning phase still and, and start to write down what you think those, where the, where the place those are coming from. And um, it, it, it get, this is where we talked about overcoming limits when we discussed it in our discussion. We were, we were, this is the one we were most nervous about <laughs> sharing with our, with our listeners right. because um, it really does call for some pretty hard reflection and some, and some scary spots. But I think that if anybody res- – so I would be highly recommended to go listen to that first before you try to overcome your limits in this. You want to go listen to that episode. And, and make sure you've digested that. And you can walk through those steps that we talk about in there. I can't remember all of them right off the top of my head, Chris, at this point. But suffice it to say that, that we walked through a few steps that you could use as that, in that learning process. Understand the why. I think yes. also once you understand you, what limit you're trying to work on and why that limit is there and you've got agreement with your coach or someone who knows you that that's, that seems to fit or that seems to be the thing that's right I also think you want to learn by looking at others and trying to understand others that may have had a similar limitation and how they overcame that, Im- that limitation so that you can learn the ways they, kind of, through application, got through it. Maybe you can learn some of the whys that they had a similar limit. So I do think you want to look in but also look out as and, a part of the learning process. And that looking in process, Chris, is um is just right you know being sure to take the time and and this is where pen and paper is important you want to write down what those what the things are being are happening the why is okay but why in what way so when you've this is probably where as we talked about in this four-step process where the learning and the knowing happen in tandem or on a continuum because then you can start looking at, okay, I now know why I have these limits, but what are the steps I need to take to overcome it? And what do they look like? And as you, you'll begin to be able to write them down, you, as you write them down, you'll need to be practical about, okay, what would it look like to overcome that? What would I look like if I did do that? And so that continuum goes, that, that, that discussion goes through point one and point two, sort of seamlessly on a continuum. Um, and then as you step out into step three, you'll say, okay, I've got the limit of not believing I'm good enough to achieve this race result. Um, I have a number of athletes that have, have this, where the idea of the thing that they want isn't aligned with the work they've done. And so one of the things they can do in this area is to make sure they keep a really accurate, consistent training log. Um, be sure that they've worked on, in my case, with my athletes, I like to work on a three-pace system. We talk about this all three-range system. It's something I've implemented over the last year that's been really revolutionary for many of my athletes. And be sure that they're on it, that they're not, that they're using it effectively, and so that they can see that they have good days and they have bad days. But in general, if they've got the appropriate goal time, that, cont- that, that range of paces allows them to show that they're fit. So that 
then when we go out, we do a final race prep or a couple of race preps. They see facility that they're able to get pretty close to it. And then the limit becomes much less mental and it becomes just a question of, okay, I've done, I've worked on all the pieces that that limitation exists. I've lived out them and worked on them in my training sessions. In this case, by doing the work, right? In one simple way, doing the work. And with overcoming limits, it's going to be a multifaceted, multi-piece approach. It's going to be probably the most difficult of all these ones that we're talking about to really implement on a real consistent basis because it's going to have a little piece here and a little piece there that you'll have to work on. But for many of my athletes, it's once I've shown them enough facility at training paces across a continuum that they're able to run the race, then they just get there and say, okay, coach, I still feel like my limit is my ability to believe that I've done it. And I at least at that point as their coach or them as a self-taught, self-coached athlete can look at that, that and say, but look, I did this workout at these paces. I did this workout at these paces. I did this workout at these paces. This indicates sufficient fitness to reach the goal that I want. A big problem for many marathoners especially um, is, that, uh, is that we're never able to do in workouts the volume at the paces to truly make someone feel entirely comfortable that they're able to achieve a goal. When I coached the 5K at, at, at the University of Texas, I had five or six workouts that once they completed that series of workouts and I knew where they were, I could predict within probably about a five to 10 second range what I thought they were capable of achieving for that race distance because they had done the work pretty consistently. For a marathoner, I'm just never going to do that. We're going to step into the unknown. That's the, that's the scary beauty of the race itself. Um, but, but we can get much closer. And so we're at a point where we are walking into that race, maybe having a former limit of not believing they could do the paces or could not feeling that they couldn't achieve that goal. But by working through this on a week by week by week basis, choosing the battles that they fought and choosing to position themselves through workouts with the understanding that this limit existed, important point, understanding and analyzing and knowing that they have that challenge, then they can see results, see successes and achieve it. And honestly, overcoming a limit of, I don't believe I can run that time for me as a coach is damn near the easiest part of my job if they give me sufficient time because it's 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 not like visualization and am I doing it right or am I not doing it right it's like oh yeah I'll shut up now I I, I can do the work um that doesn't mean they all execute on race day those fears and those and those limits sometimes continue to rear their ugly head but at that point we move into facing your fears rather than overcoming limits you know I do think this is also an area where sometimes some of these skills can be brought together and and practice at the same time i think self-talk is one that oftentimes pairs with other tools overcoming limits with self-talk could be a helpful pairing where you're also using perhaps a mantra i can do this or something of that nature i will do this i am worthy of this or whatever it may be to help you kind of change your mental doubts as it relates to that specific limit so there's an example and then eventually it becomes second nature and you don't have to worry about it. And then you start back with step one on either another limit or another element to work on. We've already been talking too long, so we're going to wrap it here. But this is the end of our series, Steve. So it's, yeah, it's we'll kind see. of, we'll yeah, see. right. And so we've got a, we've got a, 
you know, put a little bow on it. I think this episode did it. But I do want to remind people that, one, I think these are episodes that could be listened to frequently as good kind of consistent reminders. And again, just as a reminder now, we're talking about episodes 6, 11, 13, 18, 20, 25, 32, and now 40. And so these might be ones to, especially as you are in that learning process, to kind of go back to maybe a couple of times, because I do think these are episodes that you might pick up a little different points each time because they are, in many cases, pretty dense. So that's one. Second is, I do really think that the order, not only with this learning process, but also the order with which we talked about the mental elements from starting with purpose down to using and implementing the tools like we're talking about now is really important. And you're not going to get very far down implementing the tools if in practice, if you haven't done your homework on the purpose. And I know sometimes, you know, in a lot of ways, Jean was at that place, right? A couple of episodes ago where she's like, I don't know about this purpose stuff. What is it all about? And, and now she believes in it because we spent some time after that episode one-on-one really honing and refining her purpose. But I think it was an important kind of step backwards for her to the beginning that is now going to unleash a new Jean as it go as we go towards a big goal that we set as a part of that discussion. So don't forget that step because if you miss it, then the rest is not going to work. And to those coaches out there who might be listening to our podcast as refining their skill set and refining their craft, um, I can tell you, I would, I would guess, Chris, that your ability to coach Gene has gotten significantly easier. That your ability to get quickly to cut to the quick of of a principle or of a question she has or a fear that comes up or how a workout should be approached or looked at your job now becomes significantly easier because her purpose is refined and focused on and known and you're able to really direct her with very little effort because you are in alignment with hers and she's in alignment with you and you're not fighting that and you can easily tack her when she gets off track or when she's not exhibiting those attributes that are in alignment with what she says her purpose is which happens all the time folks we don't we're not we're not all living perfect lives and being perfect athletes we're, we're we struggle through this but coaches it's really worthwhile taking that time and energy to work on those on that concept of 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 knowing your purpose because um, it it makes the process for the athlete or the coach um, a much easier road to walk. Indeed. So I think that's a good way to close it out. There we go. Our series on mental training done. Thanks to everybody for listening. As we wrap here, I wanted to offer a quick thank you to all of our listeners. We're going to, by the time you're listening to this episode, hit hit our 100,000th download after starting just last December. So our, our listener base continues to grow. We've had downloads from all 50 states and from countries all over the world, including some, some U.S. troops that are listening to us in Baghdad. So shout out to you guys if you might be listening to this one. We really, really appreciate it. Steve and I are enjoying this immensely because we get to talk about our passion. Hopefully that comes through the mics, but we really, really do appreciate it. And we appreciate the emails that we we are now getting from all over the place from people that might have questions. So 
thank you to our listeners. We really appreciate it. And as we've asked before, if you like what you're listening to, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It does help. And share us with your friends because we, we definitely are in the business of wanting to reach as many people as we can with our message of running and that lives can be changed through it. So thanks again to everybody for listening and sharing and those who will write a review. All right, we'll wrap it at that. As always, you can check us out at our website, roguerunning.com, or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.